Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Bites, the podcast supported by Switzerland and Partners. I'm Jack Templeton, and I'll be your host for today. Over the last few decades, we've seen advances in rights for women, the LGBTQ community, communities of colour, and people with disabilities. But more and more, we're seeing now also attacks on these rights and continued discrimination based on characteristics such as these. The EU is yet to pass anything more encompassing related to intersectionality, unfortunately. But work is being done by many organisations and academics to further the importance of recognising it. For that reason, I'm very excited to welcome Gail Rago, a self-described social justice activist to the podcast. Hi Gail, would you like to give our audience an introduction to yourself? Sure, thanks so much Jack for having me, it's a pleasure. I'm Gail, and uh, one of the many hats I wear is as a social justice activist, which is kind of a interesting title because it's not like someone knights you social justice activist, right? So for me, it, it really means like not showing up just as a, a, a sticker or a badge I wear for certain reasons, but rather to use that as a motivation to constantly be questioning learning and unlearning and to put myself in situations where it might not be comfortable for me, but to use the power and privileges I have to make sure that social justice is being furthered. Outside of that, there are a lot of other things that I do where I actually do get paid because unfortunately activism does not usually pay. The revolution will not be funded. So In addition, I am a podcaster, I'm a trainer, I'm a communications consultant, and I'm a career coach. That's uh, that's really interesting to hear, and thanks for joining me today. To get us started, I was wondering if you could tell us what intersectionality means to you, and in a more broader context, how can someone be a good ally? Thanks for that question. So I think most of us can recognize that we've heard the term intersectionality kind of explode over the last few years. But I I often wonder if the people who are using the term really understand what it means or kind of use it as a buzz woke word to kind of say they're doing the work when they're not. So to me, intersectionality, I mean, it, it is complex in the sense that human beings are complex. When I come to you, I don't come just as a woman, but also as a brown person, also as an English speaker, also as coming from a certain socioeconomic class, being straight, being cis, being able-bodied. These are all like, and these are not even every characteristic, but these are so many of those aspects of my identity that come together and are packaged as one. And you can't just take me as, okay, Gail, I want to hear your opinion or your views, your lived experience as a woman. No, you need to look at that also from the lens of a woman who is, uh, who has a migrant background, who is brown and who has therefore faced privileges and oppressions in many different ways compared to another person who may be a woman and may be brown, but may have many other different parts of their identity that do not correspond with mine, for example. So all that just to say that human beings come with a broad range of um, specs, let's say, that make up our identity. And uh, it's very important to recognize that when you're trying to further equality, equity, and justice, because otherwise you just end up pulling a very small, narrow group of people doing something for that. But ultimately, no one is really benefited because you haven't looked at things holistically. Um, And in terms of 
how to be a good ally? I think it's a very good question. So basically, when people ask me to give an opinion, they want to hear it until it makes them uncomfortable. And then once it makes them uncomfortable, then suddenly I'm crossing the line. So to be a good ally is a very interesting term. People expect you to be an ally as long as it conforms to their ideas and they're not forced to change or unlearn. Therefore, I think a good ally is someone who understands that mistakes are part of the process. No one can learn and become better without making mistakes. That's fine. No one is saying, come into the space and be perfect. That's, that doesn't work. But I think coming into a space, recognizing that there's so much we don't know, how could I know about the experience of a person with disability? That's very broad, but how could I know that? How could I know what the experience of a Muslim trans person is? I cannot. So to come with that kind of humility, to be open to listening to other people, to respect and listen to what they have to say, but also not to speak on other people's behalf. Like I cannot come here and say, I'm representing all brown women. I can only talk about my experience. And part of that may or may not be shared by other people. So to sum up, I think being a good ally is someone who's constantly willing to learn and unlearn, who is okay making mistakes and understands that discomfort is such a big part of the process. And someone who does not take away the mic or space from the person who should be talking about their own story. Thank you for that really comprehensive explanation on intersectionality and allyship there. Uh, you nicely touched upon the discomfort that may come with being an ally. But I was wondering if you could also maybe talk about the importance of speaking out against oppression. Yeah, I think uh, the first most important step, as with most things, is awareness. To give you an example, since I'm straight, I have a partner, not, not because I'm straight, but I have a partner who is a man. And um, what I recognized throughout our relationship was in the beginning, he failed to observe or notice ways in which people were, you know, engaging in sexist or racist behavior towards me because he's a white man. So he doesn't have that view or that lens or that sensitivity to the actions and behaviors of other people. That's why I say awareness is important, because if you don't see the problem, then you're not going to be able to understand that you need to step up and say something. And that kind of comes from, you know, honestly, just listening to what your what people around you are saying. And I think maybe take one step back, think about what privilege you carry and, you know, in what ways you're being oppressed. I think that can help because, for example, if I want to understand about discrimination faced specifically by people who are brown, then I can kind of rely a bit on my experience and identity. But if I want to understand like in a working environment privilege, I would kind of talk to an intern because oftentimes they have the least amount of power in an organization. They're paid the, le the least, sometimes not even enough to survive on, but their, their views are never taken into account. So I would try to just recognize who holds and carries power and who doesn't. Um, and in that way, just, you know, again, make sure that you're not only giving space to people who are always the loudest or who always get space at the table. So that's kind of like the first and second step, right? Being aware of it, trying to assess and understand your place in this hierarchy and pyramid of power and oppression. And then these words are thrown out all the time, learning to be a good ally in the sense of, you know, you're in a space, I'll give just like very obvious examples, perhaps, but maybe you're in a meeting and, you know, your colleague who is a woman says something and is immediately interrupted by someone else, could be a man. And, you know, this is the moment where it's a very awkward place for this person to be put in. And oftentimes we 
I'll speak for myself. When something like that happens, I'm in shock. I feel humiliated. That's not really the place where I feel comfortable necessarily speaking up for myself. So while I don't necessarily need someone else to be my knight in shining armor, what I can appreciate is when someone says, well, actually, I just noticed this and I just want to make sure, Gail, are you okay? Because this was your idea or I know that you were cut off. Do you want to continue before we move on? Like that just makes, again, like visualizes what has been made invisible. And that's a big part of oppression. It's being silenced, being invisibilized, not being taken seriously, your ideas being dismissed. These are things that literally happen to us every single day. So all of these are like parts of how you can participate and support against oppression. And so speaking of listening to others and uh, creating more awareness and turning that into action, we have the upcoming EU elections this summer. Could you maybe talk about how intersectionality has been used ineffectively and incorrectly, actually, in many institutional settings? Sure. I mean, I don't work in an EU institution at the moment. So all I can talk about is as an outsider, which I think is an important view, what it looks like. And I'm seeing the same patterns repeated over and over again, whether that's, you know, in a corporate setting or in an EU setting, which is to say that people will use the term constantly and they think that they're being intersectional or inclusive or equitable when they have one woman on the panel with other men. You know, it's like if you have four men and one woman, if you have three men and two women, that's not, it's not an equation of apples and oranges and how many bananas and pears you need to add to it. That's not how it works. There's so much more to that. And I feel like that's the important learning step. That's where humility comes in. Like you're not going to know and understand everything from the beginning. That's why you make an effort to listen, to learn, to do the work. So that's kind of the, some of the patterns that I've seen. People use this terminology a lot. What I've also seen a lot from EU institutions, I don't know if it's if it just comes from being in this ivory tower, but people like to really pat themselves on the back a lot. They're like, we're doing a great job. Did you see we have two black MEPs? Hooray! And it's like, wow, you don't even recognize how ridiculous that sounds when you are, you know, when you step back and you see how many people of color or people with disabilities. So, you know, every time someone's like, we're doing a great job. We're so diverse. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Do you know how many people in your organization are black and brown? Do you have any way of understanding disability or, you know, if someone is queer? And then people are generally like, no. And I'm like, okay, well, why? And I'm not saying that there, I mean, you know, we're very, we have to be very careful about data and there are privacy issues there as well. But that has often been used as a way to say, oh, we can't collect that data because it's a privacy issue. Again, that is like just going for the easy step and just not making, just being lazy, let's be honest. For me, it's a little bit of a chicken and, egg, and an egg thing. I feel like until we have more people in positions of power, people with lived experience of oppression, it's going to be very difficult to change things. But then how do we get there? Because right now, most of our politicians, most of the people in powerful positions who are the richest are white people, are straight, are male, are able-bodied. So I'll talk to people and some people will just be like, ah, you know, it's just that generation just needs to die off. And then maybe it may sound brutal, though I'm very much someone who's like, eat the rich. That's also not realistic. That's not the only strategy we can employ. So the easiest thing that I can kind of give in terms of advice is start with yourself. You can't change anybody else. The only person you have an impact on is you. And honestly, like if we were all doing that work on ourselves, 
I think we would be so much less polarized and so much more open to seeing, understanding and appreciating the humanity that each of us brings. So you mentioned panels and actually having equal spaces, but also starting with ourselves. So Social Learning Partners recently signed the Brussels Binder Manifesto, committing to diversity on panels and at events. Have you seen this manifesto and what do you think could come from more people and companies actively engaging with it? in a sort of intent versus impact discussion would be? I mean, of course, I think all of these steps are important and needed. But like with anything, if we just stop at the talking stage and at the recognizing stage, things don't change. So I think it's important that companies and European institutions are feeling the pressure and the heat in order to, you know, actually move to action I think that's what it is. I think if there was not an incentive or this push, then I think a lot of people and institutions wouldn't change, unfortunately. So I think we need to keep that pressure up as individuals, as consumers. And in terms of people who are willing to engage, who are signing the manifesto, I think, okay, that's great that you took the first step, but the next step is the hardest, which is actually implementing and doing something about it. I would also say that, you know, part of the, in this process, some things that could work really well are engaging the services and paying people for their services to support you in understanding what equity, diversity, inclusion measures are, are important and needed in your organization, because it's not just about your events, right? It's who are you hiring? How are you making sure people are not being treated like shit or being underpaid in your organization? And to be able to do that kind of work, you can't have like an HR person in the company or someone who has a vested interest. You need an external player who's able to look at things as impartially as possible, but also someone who can feel safe and being honest about what they've actually seen. Because oftentimes I'll speak to consultants who go into companies and they know from like the first conversation what's wrong. The question is, does the company and management really want to hear it? Or do they just want a pretty report that says everything is going just fine? And if you just get two more women, you know, you can like close the box and it's all good and done. Those are some really simple things you can do, like pay someone who knows what they're doing, make sure that they actually have the power and space to, to be critical and then listen to that and take active measures. Also, just the last thing there is, Diversity and inclusion is never going to be like one training or three trainings or like a course you do over six months and then it's over. It is a lifelong journey. I would love if, you know, after you did three trainings, I would not be oppressed anymore, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So um, let's not get lazy just because now we have access to more resources doesn't mean we do one. And then we're like, oh, I'm woke now. I'm not racist. Like, that's not how it works. We're, we're also very much in societies and cultures that have been feeding us this garbage forever. There's no way any of us are not racist or ableist like, uh, or, or fat phobic. Like, we grew up in cultures that are constantly telling us we can only be one way and that's the good way and everything else is bad or ugly or wrong. And just piggybacking off of that, actually, in the barest terms, we see many studies and reports saying that more diverse teams and companies, for example, actually benefit the company in every single metric. Can you maybe briefly touch on why companies aren't racing to do this, actually? 
That's a good question. Uh, and I think it's also a complicated one. Like um, I also do trainings on intersectionality and social justice. And in a way, I kind of hate that I have to start with the why is this good for your company? Because again, it feels like such a capitalist lens to be like, you will be more productive and profitable. So that's why you should treat people like human beings. I don't want to use that rhetoric. And yet, unfortunately, I have to. And yet, as you've said, even though all of the science, all of the facts point towards diversity is good, companies are still not making the effort. So you can see, I would say, how deeply entrenched these patterns and thinking and stereotypes and, uh, and structures of, of oppression are. You know, it's, it's not going to change by just one person, but that doesn't mean that each of us doesn't have a responsibility. To answer your question, I don't know why companies are not taking this seriously and running to like do this. Because, but then again, I would also say this. If we really looked at the science and the facts, immigration is always good for a, a country. You know, If you're looking at how much money the EU is spending to um, let migrants die on their shores or drown or to push them back to other countries that have terrible human rights, if they only invested that money in allowing people to come safely and get jobs and rights. I mean, like, it's just a win, 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 win. Why? Why aren't we doing more of that? So I feel like, you know, again, maybe this is a broader question of like, who's winning and who's losing? And ultimately, aren't we all losing? Except for those very few white men in Silicon Valley who are making millions of our data on our backs. So I'm ending with that question to you. So going into another one of your specialist areas, the tech sector has actually one of the more active areas in pushing for diversity in some ways. Uh, what good practices have you seen? Uh, and how do you think we can bring these to other sectors that are a little bit slow, really, like agriculture and health? I mean, I don't know. I feel like the more I see and understand, the more disillusioned I get. I think many, many people understand what I'm talking about. So just some clarifications. I work in the digital rights sector, which I think is an important distinction to make from the tech sector. Um, basically, because a lot of what we are trying to do in the digital rights sector is tell tech companies how not to exploit people and how not to steal all our data and use it against us. So that's kind of an important uh, difference. And the, and the other reason why I talked about disillusionment is because, to be honest, I haven't seen a sector or a company or a government that has really got it right. No one is doing it as well as they should. Some are trying harder than others. Um, and again, I always question you know, earlier you actually asked me about intent versus impact. When it's gay pride in Brussels and these companies are waving uh, the pride flag, my question is always, are you doing it for the marketing or do you really care about the queer people in your organization? And it's not that hard to find out these days, you know. Um, but that's the thing. There's so much that goes into the greenwashing or the pinkwashing just to seem like a good company. Again, if you just invested that in actually treating people well, you'd probably not have to spend that much money. And again, it's, oh God, like really, if you looked at it, doing all of this the wrong way costs all of us money and makes all of us miserable. So again, why are we doing it that way, right? And then, and then you fall into a spiral of despair. Um, so just to say that I don't think that any sector, including tech, is doing it perfectly. But I will say this in terms of my very specific criti criticism. 
Um, I'll take Google as an example. Google, you know, loves to talk about how they're diverse and they have, I don't know, rest pods and snacks and, you know, all of these cool perks. And people have started to, you know, understand that these are all like, they're, they're nice, but if you don't pay people well and you don't, you know, if, if, you're, if your employees don't feel respected and heard and not bullied, et cetera, then it doesn't matter how many free M&Ms I get. And so the reason I also talked about Google specifically is because a few years ago, there was this very big case about Timrit Gebru, this really influential black researcher at uh, who was working specifically on kind of, I think, AI and how Google and its algorithms was actually very detrimental towards um well, towards people in many different ways. And as soon as that research came to light, Google fired her and her entire team. So how can we really look at any of these big players as an example when they show us one thing and then behind the scenes, as soon as there's criticism, they literally fire people to silence them. Luckily, this was one of the cases that did get more publicity. People have learned about this, but not everyone, right? And what has the reputational damage or impact been to Google? Not a lot, I guess. So yeah, basically, I think we should be doing a better job. And I wouldn't necessarily say that the tech sector is doing better at that. I wish I had all the solutions and I could just say step one, step two, and step three. I've tried to give specific examples and I've tried to say, you know, this this is what I see works. In a way, it's very general and basic. You know, you start with yourself and you start by being as human as you can. It might sound really simple, but I feel like a lot of us are not doing that enough. The specific sectors perhaps that are doing even worse might be because there isn't enough representation of women or people of color, etc. So again, it goes back to this chicken and egg thing. How can companies see that it's important to recruit and retain a diverse workforce? And then once you have that in place and people move to positions of power, Hopefully then, um, you know, they're going to be making policies and processes that uh, actually push us towards a more equitable future. Maybe to wrap this up a little bit then and then turn it onto the individuals who are actually listening. Could you maybe recommend some resources for people who want to dive a little bit deeper on this? Uh, and then also, where is the best place for people to find you, Gail? I'm going to take this opportunity of uh, being the speaker to just like, there were some really interesting reflections that we ha we've had, like also in our conversations, Jack. Um, and I kind of wanted to, to say that out loud, because I think it's a very good point, right? Like when I talk about having enough representation, that's not going to fix every problem because we also have seen how there are plenty of brown or women politicians who literally are doing the worst against people who are oppressed, which is heartbreaking, but again, shows how systematically, if you are a person who's structurally just, um, marginalized or oppressed, you can only often get to that position of power by stepping on other people and by appropriating or getting as close to whiteness as possible. And whiteness often means oppression. So that's really sad. Like one very specific example I can give because of my Indian like heritage and identity is for me to see Indians who, you know, live in the diaspora in the UK or the US who are, you know, Trump supporters or Brexit supporters or the ones who are super adamant about not improving uh, immigration or like labor opportunities. And it's really heartbreaking, right? Because it's like, 
you know how hard it is. So you want other people to suffer just as much. Like in a way, I understand that to a certain degree, right? We're like, we had to fight so hard. Why should anyone else have it easier? But again, like I think, oh, those are the conversations that need to be ha- happening around dinner tables and, you know, in homes because it's a really messed up way to look at things. Because if you do that for someone else, maybe someone would have done it for you, right? Like the fact that, you know, despite the, the, the difficulties we have, the fact that I, as a brown woman, have access to certain rights is because other women have fought for me along the way for many, many, many years. So we shouldn't take that for granted. And I I really think we need to address this thing of why are the people who are marginalized the most continuing to further this oppression, which is just really heartbreaking. Okay, and then to go to your uh, question, um, actually, about resources and stuff, I'm really bad with names and things. So I don't know if I'll be able to give you a lot. Uh, then again, I would literally say, like, I, I hate Google, so I'll just say uh, duck, duck, go it. But duck, duck, go it. And, you know, I mean, you like, that's the thing. You don't need me to give you a list. It's so easy to find. There's just, there's a lot of great resources out there. One that I really liked uh, and that I learned a lot from, I think it's called Why Don't Talk to White People About Race. I think that's what it's called. It's, it's really, I mean, it's a great book. I find it hard sometimes to read nonfiction, honestly. So I listen to the podcast, which is super accessible. The speaker is brilliant. And, so, you know, it's like, the, I mean, of course, the title is very catchy, but I just learned a lot from that. For me, it was a really beautiful, empowering place to hear why, as activists, we are exhausted, we're underpaid, we're underappreciated. So I'm not going to waste my time talking about race or any other oppression to people who aren't really listening, who don't want to listen, who just want to be told, yeah, you're not racist. Well, I'm not going to give you that badge. No one can give you that badge. Um, so that's one I really like. Then there are also some really cool books, uh, I'm blanking on the names, but around data and gender uh, around like tech and how it's furthering oppression um, or DuckDuckGo it. But there, yeah, there are some really, really good books uh, around that, which are also really interesting because again, it shows how our future of like depending on digital for everything is not only reinforcing, but like, it's like to the power of three oppression, you know, it's like raising it to such crazy uh, degrees because it's hidden and you can pretend that technology is neutral, which absolutely it is not. Um, And we're already seeing the repercussions of that. So go and read and learn, do it in the way that works for you, right? The reason why I also can't necessarily say, oh, these books off the top of my head is because the ways I've learned are also by doing it in community, joining little activist groups in Brussels, um, speaking with activists one-to-one. That's how I learn. I learn through storytelling. That's the power that I believe in. So go and learn in a way that makes sense for you. Thank you, Gil, for that incredible insight today. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of Sustainability Bites.